So this interview you're about to hear was recorded, to badly paraphrase Don McLean, the day before 2020 died. Although we are already recovering and we will rise from the ashes of this horrible pandemic, I thought before you listen to this really inspiring interview that I did with Kevin Hancock, CEO of Hancock Lumber, which is the oldest and most successful lumber business in the great state of Maine since 1846, we should touch base with Kevin, get a quick update on what these last three months have been like for him. Kevin, it is so good to chat again, and, and, and I think that if we can, if you can catch everyone up with what happened when you return back from our New York City interview and talk about how you personally handled this as a CEO, how Hancock Lumber continues to survive, and maybe even share your views on where you found the strength despite all of the personal challenges and everything going on, to quote one of my idols, Winston Churchill, to keep calm and carry on. Why don't you just join in? Mitch, it's great to be back with you. And just listening to you talk made me think about that day in March that we were together at your office. And to your point, that day, New York City was fully functioning normally and wonderfully. And literally the next day, the country began to shut down. So it really made me think to listen to that. Anyway, when I left you, I went back home to Maine. And of course, our first real piece of work was to determine whether or not our company could stay open. Just for some quick context, our lumber company grows trees, and we have sawmills that manufacture lumber that we ship all over the world, and then we've got stores, lumber yards here in Maine. So it turned out we were an essential quote-unquote service company and that we could stay open. But then the second big question, of course, was, well, our employees, how are they feeling and are they going to want to work? And this really turned out to be the pivotal moment for us. I was not interested in making people work if they weren't comfortable. So we really went out and engaged all of our employees, 550 of them, to have a conversation around what they wanted to do. And it turned out Long story short, that essentially everyone really wanted to work, to work through this challenge. Now, to add one more piece of context to this, when I say work, I'm talking about, in our case, working on site. It was not possible for our company to run remotely. Just picture what, what you might envision with respect to a sawmill in terms of making lumber, we have not figured out how to make lumber from our couch in our sweatpants. <laughs> you, you've got to be there live to do it. So when we were contemplating this choice, the choice was not to work remotely, it was either to work on site together or not to work at all. And essentially, all of our employees wanted to work. And so then this was in the early period of the virus. So there weren't really any 
federal or state guidelines yet, which was a bit of a blessing because we really got to craft our own strategies that fit our own unique industry and company. And essentially all we focused on doing was spreading out. You know, we really focused on distancing and we were able, never would have thought of this before we had to, but we were able to do every job in our company six feet apart. And so we spaced everything out. We kept everything clean and we've operated every day uninterrupted ever since. We've not had an employee case of the virus and our business has actually held strong. We're, we're actually a bit busier this year than we were last year. So all in all, for us, it's been quite uplifting. And even though literally it's pulled us apart, I would say overall it brought us as a company quite close together. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. And that's such a nice story to hear because it's pretty rare. And I assume everyone was wearing masks while they were doing their work. And, you know, that was part of the whole protocol or whatever you were doing. And it's so really heartfelt to, to hear that that was possible. Because as you said, there certainly were a lot of jobs that people just could not possibly do like I'm doing sitting here in, you know, shorts with my windows open and doing my work from home. I'm fortunate I can do that, but in many businesses, certainly essential ones like yours, you were able to do that. And I, I think that's that's really great for people to hear. And 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 folks, I'd love you stay tuned because coming up is this interview from that last day in New York City in March. We're talking uh, with Kevin Hancock. He is the author of a great book. If you haven't had a chance to read it, please run out, get it. It's called The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership. And it's available at Amazon and certainly all great booksellers. And Kevin, I wish you well. And I know all of us will be back soon and resuming our new normal. And now stay tuned for Financially Speaking with Mitch Slater and my episode pre-pandemic with Kevin Hancock. Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. What if everyone on earth felt trusted, respected, valued, and heard. What might change? Well, our guest today, who I'm quoting right now from his TED Talk, Kevin Hancock, says everything might change. And the workplace is where that change can be sparked. So where did this CEO of one of the oldest, 1846, and most successful lumber companies in Maine, and I would imagine the country, come up with this vision? Well, it took a rare voice disorder, a walk in the desert at sunset, and a remote Indian reservation in South Dakota for him to make this truly revolutionary change at his lumber company. And now he is telling the whole story and more in a beautiful new book called The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership. 
published by Post Hill Press. And we are so fortunate to have Kevin with us in our New York studio today to talk about his story, this new leadership style based on strengthening the voice of others. Welcome, Kevin. Mitch, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, first, meeting inspirational people like you is exactly why I love what I do and created this particular show. I want to make the most of our time today and and have our audience get to know you, your mission and journey. So why don't we start with what I guess is the most obvious but important year in your life, 2010. Take us back to what was already the most challenging time in our modern history. And as a financial advisor, I, I lived through it. But certainly the housing market was spiraling downward, lumber yards you know, were shutting down left and right. And obviously the economic crisis was in full bloom. So if that wasn't enough for a lumber company CEO, you lose your voice. What happened? Yeah, that was something I never saw coming. So as you mentioned, it was 2010 and I was really busy trying to help our company navigate its way through the collapse of the housing market when I began to have trouble speaking, something I'd always taken for granted, never thought about and done a lot of. So when I would go to talk, all the muscles in my throat would kind of contract and squeeze and my voice could get quite choppy and broken. And anyway, it turned out I had acquired a rare neurological disorder called spasmodic dysphonia that I'd never heard of that affects only speech with no known cause and no known cure. And of course, as a CEO, uh, a traditional CEO, my primary tool at work had (laughs) been my voice. Suddenly, I couldn't really use it. So long story short, when it's difficult to talk, you develop strategies for doing less of it. And (laughs) my primary strategy early on was simply to ask a question, to answer a question rather with a question, thereby putting the conversation right back on the other person. Mm -hmm. So you take that classic scene at work where someone would come up to me because I was the CEO or the boss with a question or a problem. And in the past, I would have provided an answer direction coming from me. And suddenly I started simply saying, well, that is a good question. What do you think we should (laughs) do about it? And what struck me over time about this approach... Open-ended questions are always the best. Yeah. And what struck me over time about that approach was that people actually already knew what to do. It turned out they didn't really need, after all, a CEO-centric solution to the vast majority of the questions and challenges they faced in the course of a day. They already knew what to do. So what started as kind of a guttural reaction to protect my voice actually became the seeds for a very different way of thinking about leadership. Right. We'll dig a little deeper into that, but I want to I want to go back to your youth growing up. Everyone sort of has their first story as a former guest Flip Flippin uh, taught me, which is kind of what you were born into and and how everything started. So I believe this was not necessarily your plan to be in the family business. Um, You were teaching and coaching basketball. 
How did you wind up being the sixth in the generation of the uh, lumber industry? Yeah, it's uh, funny in hindsight. So our company began doing business uh, in the 1840s prior to the first cannon mall being fired in the Civil War. And we're one of the oldest uh, family businesses in America today. And I am part of the sixth generation of my family to work there. But growing up, I actually never considered coming to work for the company, which I laugh about in hindsight. It wasn't like negatively or anything. I just never thought about it. I wanted to um, to be a college basketball coach. And anyway, I was coaching and teaching in 1991. And my dad, uh, who was running the company at the time, acquired cancer at, at the age of 48. Oh. And I wouldn't say that was the only reason, but I kind of changed plans on short notice, came to work for the company, started on the front counter uh, at one of our stores, mm -hmm. and 30 years later, I've <laughs> been there ever since. Yeah. Where were you coaching? Were you coaching in co uh, uh, college at that coaching point? Coaching at a prep school, prep school? in Maine called mm -hmm. Bridgeton Academy. And you played basketball? I did. I played at uh, Bowdoin College in Maine. Oh, sure. What have you taken from your time in basketball that you've done in business? I would say a lot of things, but in particular, probably resilience that you earn that things don't always go your way, but you've got to lace your sneakers up and get mm -hmm. back out there and keep competing and trying to improve. And a lot of that, I think, parallels cross into business because business success or a business career, of course, is not linear. It's going to have a lot of ups and downs and curves to it. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, and, and other athletes that I've talked to that have gone into other businesses all talk about like everyone else, the 10,000 hours and, and the time that they spent really being a team player and, and hustling and getting to where they had to be really is led to many of them that were smart enough to think about it early and be successful. So now you're learning to manage this rare disorder, which, by the way, environmentalist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has. And, and, and you realize there needs to be, I guess, a shift in how you're going to manage Hancock Lumber by giving every employee their own voice. So I want to talk about that transition and dig into that a little bit. Yeah, Thank you. Great question. So this all, again, really started as just like uh, figuring out coping mechanisms for handling my voice. But I started to actually see a very different leadership model. I had an epiphany at, at one point that, well, maybe my voice disorder was an invitation to lead differently in a way that strengthened the voices of others. And I got thinking about this very simple idea, what if everybody led? What if every voice was a leading voice for the company? Wouldn't an organization where everybody led be more agile and dynamic and exciting and socially valuable and financially successful than a traditional model that was about power to the center where a few people held all the cards and were the quote-unquote voice of the company. So what started as a hindrance 
to me, my voice actually became a life-changing opportunity that I've since become super thankful for and quite passionate about creating a, a very different approach to leadership where the leaders uh, try to figure out how to do less, not more. Mm -hmm. Now, is there a lot of resistance? It's not, not an easy thing to do overnight. From employees. Yeah, I think initially probably people were curious when this first started to make sure this wasn't the uh, idea of the month or the right. quarter. And this is, and again, this is in 2010 when this is all happening. So, you know, this is really the, the most difficult time in your industry probably since it started in 1846. Correct. Yeah, no, yeah, no doubt. Uh, but at the same time, really, when you think about it, the idea of giving everybody a voice, helping everybody feel heard, inviting everybody to lead, those are kind of really easy ideas to rally people around. And intuitively, those ideas seem, I think, to most people directionally good and optimal. So it's kind of a cause that's hard to be against really when mm -hmm. you stop and think about it. Yeah, I, I would think so, but you know, what what if you have if you have to manage situations where maybe someone at the company doesn't necessarily live up to your own values? Um, did you have to handle that at all? Or was that already kind of they wouldn't be there if <laughs> Yeah, so that's a great question and and yeah, that comes up and I've dealt with that a number of times, but really at the center of my leadership transformation was really that essential idea uh, from Gandhi about becoming the change. And so uh, recently we had a situation where I was pretty disappointed about how our company had handled something. But instead of, say, talking about what other people might have done differently, I went into the room and just talked about what I could have done differently, either what I did not do right. that enabled this to happen or what I did do that enabled this to happen. So how you learn from your own failures, turn, so to speak. Yeah. everyone yeah. unsolicited right. did the same thing. And, and what that has made me really excited about and committed to is creating a work culture where it is safe for people to actually say what they think and safe for people to learn, to err, to make mistakes, to talk about their choices, and to grow. Hmm. Not many people know, by the way, that Gandhi started in the lumber industry. He was one of, one of the great, great uh, lumberjacks of all time, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for another show. Um, in your TED Talk, you throw out some, which we're going to link to, folks, you've, you've got to watch this. You throw out some really disheartening statistics saying only one out of three Americans and less than two out of 10 global workers describe their jobs as engaging. And you go on to say how work should be more than just an economic exercise and should be meaningful everyone. And you were just talking about that. How have you accomplished that? And is there hope in this new decade to, to see more of that? What, you know, what, what's that going to take? Yeah, it's great you bring that up because think about how unfortunate that is for two out of three Americans to not who work, to not find their work experience 
engaging or meaningful beyond a paycheck in the 21st century. That's just not an acceptable exchange. I think everybody understands that time, life, is too precious and valuable to sacrifice your entire work career. And, and our kids' generation know that even more. I, I mean, do they think really, this is changing. it's a big deal. Yeah, and that's why I think that's a great point, that companies that don't make this change are going to find themselves eventually on the short end of the stick. But so what we did simply, Mitch, in fact, it probably sounds too simple to be significant, is we decided to make the employee work experience our top corporate priority. So if you think about a flywheel of corporate success that would include all the traditional constituents, employees, customers, suppliers, community, industry, country, mm -hmm. humanity, our approach has been to put that flywheel of success in motion at the point of the employee experience and with the belief that if the employees are having what they would describe as a meaningful, valuable experience that they will figure out how to take world-class care of the customer and the company in return. So we made the employee experience the first mission of the company. And when we did that, profit essentially became what I now talk about as a important outcome of a higher calling. And I bet you the profit went up. Correct. Yeah, which is incredible. I, we talked a few months ago to um, a woman named Claude Silver. She is the chief heart officer for Gary Vaynerchuk's company, VaynerMedia, which in the old days was HR, but she comes at it from a very different perspective and is all really about, she just you know has all these beating hearts in the room and, and how to make the most and help them and mentor them. And, and the change in that organization since this woman joined them a few years ago, because I, I see a lot at that company has been so significant. So it, it, it really... It really is critical. So let's get to this great book, The Seventh Power. So this has been so well-reviewed and not just a good read, but really one all leaders need to read. You know, everyone talks about great leadership books, and we just lost Jack Welch, who wrote some of the great, great books recently. But this is one, I think, in the new decade, folks, you got to take a look at. So you share many personal anecdotes from different places that you've traveled that taught you not only a great deal about leadership, but oppression. So talk about those experiences and how they impacted your own leadership style. Thank you. Yeah, so this book is a bit of a travel adventure that starts on the Navajo Indian Reservation mm -hmm. in Arizona and ends up in Kiev in the Ukraine, yeah. <laughs> picking up a lesson. Seven I, did, I lessons didn't see that coming when I started Along the it. way, nor did yeah. I. <laughs> But one of the things that really struck me when I started thinking about leadership was that, unfortunately, in total across time, those who have had the most power have often gone too far. They've overreached. And this overreaching has consequences and ultimately collapses back upon the people who do it. I first saw this 
through some time I spent on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation on the Northern Plains in mm-hmm. South Dakota, those Sioux tribes. What led you to go there? Well, I didn't see that coming either. In 2012, the economy had stabilized. Mm-hmm. I could see our company had stabilized. And I had this growing feeling that I fought coming from the rugged individualism of the forest products industry in Maine that I needed to serve myself a bit more, right? kind of regain my balance, find my voice. And that summer, I picked up a copy of National Geographic, and the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation was on the cover. And I read that yellow magazine, and it was as if every character from that story leaped out of those pages and gave me this big hug. I'd never felt that way before or since reading anything. And I finished the article, leaned over towards my wife and said, I'm going to go there. I want to see what life is like for the people who live there. And I've since been there now over 20 times. But in summary, this was a community that before the quote-unquote winning of the West and America's manifest destiny was very independent, prosperous, self-sufficient. And then after the conquest and Mm -hmm. the exploitation and the genocide – and being remade for generations right. today, it's the poorest place in America. And to me, it was a great big example of overreaching of those who had the most power, took it too far. And to this day, we're still grappling with the consequences of events that took place in the 19th century. Mm. And these are the Sioux Indians that are on, on that Reservation? Correct. The Sioux tribes on the Northern Plains, of which there are a number. And at Pine Ridge, it's the Oglala Sioux tribe. They're some of the the direct descendants of some of the most famous war chiefs and medicine men in American history. Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Mm -hmm. Black Elk, and others. Yeah. It's almost like the John Wayne movies just ruined American history. Yeah. You (laughs) You know, know, there there, there might be some wonderful movies, but... They don't tell you the other side. And and the more that I've learned about it, I love history. I read a lot. It's just absolutely devastating what what this country has – this country has done a lot of devastating things. But that's one that's really unforgivable. It's it's so true. And and here was the connection. So I was at Pine Ridge kind of searching for my own voice where I encountered an entire community that didn't feel fully heard, that felt like a piece of their voice had been taken or stolen. And I understood what it was like to not feel fully heard. And and it really helped me realize that there are lots of ways for people to lose their voice in this world. And that modern leadership should not be about restricting voices or directing voices, it should be about liberating them and helping humans self-actualize. And where on this planet are adults going to have a forum to self-actualize, to come into their own voice? I think the most likely place is work, the Mm -hmm. place of work. Right. You've been there 20 times. Tell me about visit 15 through 20 what 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 are you doing you know you obviously means so much to you and you've i guess you know every every person that's there in one way or another is it just is it just more of a visit to learn more or is it you know are you are you doing something specific there so i used to not know how to answer this question and then finally i just started coming clean Mm -hmm. 
I don't actually do anything there, which I think is why it's gone. Well, you so show well. up. Yes, yes, that's which all I really do. I go deal. there, <laughs> and I travel around, and I spend time with the people I know who live there. For centuries, they've had a couple centuries. They've had people from away coming there to quote unquote fix them. Right. Or quote unquote save them. And this really gets to the title of my book. I never had any feeling that any of that was necessary. I could see right from the beginning that these people were beautiful, amazing, creative, smart, resilient, proud, caring people. They're human beings. Of course. And they had within them everything they needed to create their own success. Well, I'm going to jump to what was going to be my seventh question since you've just brought that up. But let's talk about the meaning of the title, The Seventh Power, which I know harkens back to your first book, which was award-winning and it was a New York Times bestselling book called Not for Sale, Finding Center in the Land of Crazy Horse. And you say their voice, the Sioux, which has the poorest of the poor reservations, has had their voice taken away over time and helped you understand what it's like literally to have your voice taken away and not being heard. So maybe tell us about the first six and, and why this is the seventh power. Yeah. What is the seventh you. power? Yeah. So the one of the most sacred symbols for the Sioux is the medicine wheel. And it represents around the perimeter what they talk about as the six great external powers, the power of the West, the North, the East, the South, the sky, and the earth. But on one of my early visits, I was sitting with a, a young man wise beyond his years from the reservation who told me that those who know the old ways at Pine Ridge say that a seventh power also exists, and it lives at the very center of the wheel, at the north-south-west-east axis. And that seventh power is you. It's me. It's the individual human spirit. And that while there are many things that come into our lives and disrupt us or assist us, that we do the same back into the system, that, that we are of the same sacred energy <laughs> that the universe was created by, and it's a part of us. And that seventh power, long story short, is the power of the individual human spirit. And then quickly, when I looked at uh, Sioux history, what I saw again is before their conquest, their cultural model honored the individual. It was right out of Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book idea, the strength of the pack is the wolf, and if every individual was speaking and living their own truth, then the tribe would be strong. In that cultural model, these people flourished. In the new model that was imposed on them, where power was taken to the center and they were governed from away through bureaucratic offices, it's become the poorest place in America. And it's not the people are, are innately amazing in both scenarios. It's really the leadership culture uh, that they were put under. And I, and I really concluded in summary that culture makes the difference, that leadership culture 
either collects power or it disperses it. And I wanted to be about dispersing it. Mm. Any industry in that area? Anything? I mean, what do these people do? It's uh, very rural. No, uh, there are casinos. Very rural. Or, they're a couple yeah. hours south of Rapid oh, City. So they're pretty uh, far. There's some ranching. There's mm-hmm. some farming. Mm-hmm. But unemployment there is close to 80%. So back to 2010, we had this national crisis when unemployment hit 10%. Yeah. At Pine Ridge today, it's close to 80%. Mm. Do people leave? Do the next generations leave? They do. Some leave, some stay, some go, some come back. It's quite fluid. But really what makes them stay or come back is super powerful. We all can relate to it. It's home. Yeah, it's home. Exactly. You make this statement which, which uh, in the book, which some may call radical. I, I, I don't think it's that way. But you talk about how, in your view, the customer does not come first anymore. It's the people that take care of the customer that comes first. I just love that. And I totally get it. So tell me how you found that philosophy and why you live that way. Yeah, the first time I uttered it, I was worried it was too radical too. And how do your customers up, feel about it? I stood it? <laughs> up in front of a room full of our biggest customers in Portland, Maine one year, a few years back and said, you know that old saying, the customer comes first. I don't actually think that's true anymore. And I paused and I went on to say, I think that the people who are going to take care of the customer should come first. And if the company takes great care of the employees, they will in turn take great care of the customer. So now to borrow a piece of main slang, what I like to say is the customer comes a wicked close second. <laughs> Do you know the term wicked in mm-hmm. main terminology? Yeah, sure. So it actually means good right. when you use that right. term. So we're super into our customers. Mm-hmm. They're very, very important. And we know we don't have economic opportunity without them, but they don't come first. They come a very close second. The people who are going to take care of the customer come first. What we've found over time is our customers actually, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, they love this. Mm -hmm. They really rally around that idea that the people at our company who are working so hard to serve them are being served by their company. That's wonderful. So I have a, a fun little way to wrap some of this up. I've got a couple of rapid fire questions that I always like to specifically talk to CEOs about when I'm fortunate enough to, to meet some of them. So here they go. If you could have a giant billboard anywhere with anything on it to get a message out to billions, what would it say and why? It would say, follow your voice. Mm, beautiful. And the why would be, there are never going to be on this planet two voices that are supposed to be identical. You know, there's been a lot of pressure in organizations to conform, but really, I think in the 21st century, the emphasis should be to individuate and to help people self-actualize. Beautiful. What's one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? I'm, not, I'm talking about you know stock market investments, but just general investments. The investment of time to serve myself. Wow, that's great. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has improved your life? 
well, a lot, but one mm-hmm. that comes to mind would be listening for understanding, not judgment. The purpose of listening is not to judge what someone is saying. It's to understand what they're saying. So true. What book or books have you given besides yours, of course, most as a gift and, and, and maybe certain books that have influenced your life? And I would add, if someone wants to read more about what you've noticed and, you know, for those that can't get to South Dakota and, and understand the quest of, of the Sioux Indian, and maybe there's something in that world too. Yeah. Well, on that, on that prompt, I love reading about Black Elk, who was the, the great kind of Lakota spiritual leader of the 1900s. I have got really interested in indigenous wisdom communities that, that lived not in sync with nature. When you live in sync with nature, you dial in to its truths. And I think there's wisdom there that the modern world risks losing sight of. So for me, these traditional communities have actually so much value to share with the modern world as we as humanity tries to navigate its way into the future. So what's next for you? You're still a young guy. Is there another Hancock waiting in the wings to take this to the seventh generation? Well, we have two lovely daughters, and as you might expect now, my wish for them Mm -hmm. is only for them to follow their own true voice, wherever that will take them. Hmm. Speaking of voice, before I let you go, have you found that your voice has specifically improved over time since since the disorder. Well, it's been about ten years. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like you can clearly tell, it's not quote unquote normal here talking, but mm-hmm. you probably understood every pretty word. much everything yeah. that said, yeah. and it's a lot easier to talk. So my voice is actually getting better, and this is really fun for me because one of my big endeavors is to cure something that's been written off as incurable. And I believe in keeping with this book that that power lives within us. I felt like my voice condition came to me for a reason. It's kind of a shot across my bow, a gift from my own soul. (laughs) (laughs) And I then reasoned that if I therefore learned and implemented those lessons that brought the voice condition into my life, that, well, why wouldn't it then be able to go away because it had done its job? Right. So we'll see. And you said it's improved when you first this first happened. Were you just unable to speak? At times. Yeah. It, it very so painful. inconsistent. Yeah, tight and hard mm-hmm. for people to hear, but it's gotten a lot better. Uh, well, yeah, without, without a doubt. Well, Kevin Hancock, thank you so much for sharing your time and truly your inspirational journey over the last 10 years. We haven't even gotten to Kiev. I'm going to let people find that out in the book. The book, again, is called The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership. It's written by Kevin Hancock, published by Post Hill and available at your favorite local bookstore and certainly Amazon and everywhere else online. And you should just go order it and then you can thank me later. Trust me. 
That's all for this week. Thank you so much to Adam and everybody at Resonate for the wonderful post-production, to my new uh, besties, Case and Ash at 777 Public Relations for just bringing me incredibly inspiring folks like Kevin and bringing them to you. And remember, when saving for your financial future, pay yourself first. Have a great week. 